Before this episode of The Final Word, a reminder that Adam and Jeff are producing daily episodes during the Australia v. India test series. The daily ups are available within about two hours of the end of the day's play. If you have an interest in the origin story of the Australia versus India rivalry, check out The Greatest Season That Was Presents, The Final Frontier. It's a great long-form documentary that explores the beginnings of Australia v. India. Episode 1 features Hasha Bogle and Episode 2, Gavin Robertson. Episodes with Adam Gilchrist, Damian Fleming, and Colin Funky Miller are on the way. The Greatest Season Was presents and The Final Word are part of the Bad Producer Podcast Network. You can check out all of our podcasts at badproducerproductions.com. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and The Final Word. Right now, at CBUS, we're building a new future for all of us. By building new projects in property, investing in infrastructure, and putting millions into Australian businesses, we're not only helping to create around 100,000 jobs, we're strengthening the economy. And with a history of strong, long-term performance, we're building a better, more secure future for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast. Welcome to the year of our Cricketing Lords 2021. Or maybe it's it's further forward in time. Maybe you're a historian researching your biography of Adam Collins, in which case, welcome to you as well, and I hope the uh, the weather is fine where you are. I'm Jeff Lemon. Adam is with me. Uh, we're in Melbourne. We're not in Sydney, but there is about to be a test match in Sydney in the week to come. There'll be daily shows to wrap all of that up uh, most aptly and most appropriately on the show today. We're featuring our interview before the SCG test with SCG McGill, who we spoke to a few months ago now on a, a Zoom live show, um, but it was such a good conversation that we decided that the uh, the edited version had to be made public and had to be made public during a, a week when a, a Sydney match is coming, one that was so closely associated with Stuart over his illustrious career. That's going to be uh, not first cab off the rank, but a very shortly placed cab after the initial cabs that get going. Hello, Adam. Hello, Jeff. I was having a look at SCG McGill's SCG numbers last night, as as one does. Hmm. Uh, you know, sure. Further establishing yep. why I, why I was so popular as a teenager. Well, you've you've got a baby with that's not feeling that well. Like, why not? What better to soothe Winnie than to read her SCG's numbers? Yes, and he. Well, yes, yeah, you can probably hear her. If you can't hear her now, you will be able to soon. She's got conjunctivitis. The poor dear, and she's coughing and sputtering away, and. Uh, the, the the trials and tribulations of having an infant who you let crawl around the floor at the pub on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> that will happen. They will get ill. Anyway, um, but yeah, he, he, t- he took the second most amount of wickets ever at the SCG in Test Cricket, only behind Warm. So it kind of does reinforce that not only was it his mm. home ground, but it was where he did his finest work. So, And I think this interview is some of our finest work too. Not so much because of uh, the, the questions that were being asked, although I'm sure they were they were on the money. Just his answers. He was so giving mm. as a guest in that live show environment that we didn't actually have to do an awful lot to turn it into a, a proper sort of final word weekly show interview that you'd be familiar with over many years. Uh, usually the live shows wouldn't correspond with a, with a, with a, with a podcast on the feed because they get a bit loose and a bit tangential and, and all the rest. But this was uh, right in that tradition. So uh, I'm glad that we've uh, 
been able to clean it up thanks to DC for this and uh, we'll you'll be able to enjoy that before the hopefully before the Sydney cricket ground test that starts tomorrow yeah that's what struck me listening back over it in the last couple of days was was how considered and and thoughtful you know the replies were and and the way that we ended up having a conversation that went down a lot of paths that I don't think you or I were expecting it to go. Mm. So um, that is coming up at uh, in the second part of the show. The audio from that is extracted via Zoom, so it's not entirely as crisp as it might normally be, but it's uh, it sounds pretty good from the listen back that I've had. Before that, we've got uh, the other... Bits of business to attend to. Um, the, the fact that we are having a test match in Sydney after all of the back and forth of the last week or 10 days is notable in itself, Adam. Yes, as we talked about in our New Year's show, Sydney did get the test match, so we're not there. <laughs> so, um, it, it's had a, a fairly considerable knock-on. So there was... India were aggrieved, not so much by going to Sydney, but the provisions uh, placed on them by Queensland Health. Whether that had been explained to them adequately before they signed a dotted line, who's to know? We don't really know the, the mechanics of what went on behind the scenes. But they were certainly angling for Sydney, Sydney, uh, and not having to leave the SCG, and in yeah. turn not having to play at the Gabba, not having to be in stricter quarantine in Brisbane. And by that, I mean there were suggestions that the Indian players would be allowed to go to the Gabba to train and play and return straight to their hotel rooms, as distinct from being in the hotel mm. or, or being able to be in the community so long as they're wearing masks, as, as has been the case in Melbourne. So mm. they briefed the story out fairly heavily, fairly widely, after Brat Sundaracing got the initial break, uh, that they wanted to stay put in New South Wales for the duration of the tour. Now, that's not going to happen, as I understand it, from talking to CA over the last couple of days. The Gabba test will go on, but if not for the decision in the first place to go to Sydney, then maybe we wouldn't have that for the first time in 2021. Bruhaha from the uh, Indian, uh, uh, from the Indian management, who were who were right on this over the weekend. So Sydney goes ahead, and as far as we know, Brisbane goes ahead as planned. What we're not sure about is whether Wilpikowski's summer uh, will go ahead as he's anticipating, or what he's anticipating. They're still being very cagey about whether he'll play. Justin Langer doing a bit of fancy verbal footwork around that. They're sort of they seem to be preparing people for the eventuality of him playing without actually saying that he will. Yeah, this was a this was a an interesting press conference yesterday. I, I wrote about it afterwards. So you're right as far as they want to give themselves wiggle room for him not to play, but they want to make it very clear that he's permitted to play by the medical staff and not only via CA's own concussion protocols, but a neurologist that CA appointed and an independent neurologist, so a second opinion to clarify that he's good to go. And the Langer perspective is that what they've learnt from the neurologist is that there aren't going to be any long-term effects from the knocks that Will's taken so far. Now, how they've arrived at that conclusion, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to get into this, but that seemed like a relatively jarring part of this, that how do we know now, with him at age 22, what effects he might experience at age 44 or age 66? But anyway, I digress. The point is, with Will, is that we're also tremendously excited to see him debut for Australia, and if, and if it plays out that way and he does well, and even if he doesn't do well, even if he just takes the field and, and gets this out of the way after two years of sort of Will, he won't here it'll be a considerable achievement of itself we know his first class record is extraordinary every time he's had to take a step up he's done so with flying colors so on cricket grounds 
Great, fantastic news. Uh, it's just more for me that if Joe Burns rattled off a century at Melbourne last week, would we be having this conversation? Would Pukowski been even brought back into the squad given it would only been three and a half, four weeks since that headlock at Dremoyne? Would we even have considered, I say we as though we make some choice here, the royal we, would Australia, would Australian <laughs> cricket be considering Pukowski this week? Is it, you know, as much as anything linked to the fact that they need someone of Pukowski's patience and technique at the top of the order to repel dynamic Indian bowling lineup that's having more to do with this than what would have been the case had they had a stable top order at the moment. So impossible for us to answer those questions in the absence of the counterfactual. Like, it's all kind of debate points. But, um, yeah, I, I came away from that press conference and writing about it feeling as though if he does debut, I'm going to be elated for him, but I'm also going to be kind of shitting myself when, when he's bombed by Boomerah, and he will be bombed by Boomerah because that's Boomerah's job. I'm not placing a value judgment uh, on the Indian bowlers saying they should not bounce Bukowski. Of course they will. It's their job. They will. That's inside mm. the, the laws of the game, and, and there's no concerns with that, and the playing conditions by the ICC permit you to bowl two bounces and over, and, and they'll do precisely that, whether it's Bukowski facing or anyone else. So that episode will play out if he does take the field. So it's a tough one. There's no easy answer. And it's an interesting one as well, just in terms of how many changes they're willing to make. It's obviously Warner's coming in. Generally, you find with Australian teams, they're often reluctant to make more than one change. You know, if there's a change that has to be made, then they place a high value on the idea of stability. But we've seen with the Indian team, they're much more inclined to be brisk about it and not worry too much. So you look at the way the 11 changed after the Adelaide test mm, where mm. it's Rishabh in, Jadeja in, Gill in, you know, whatever's not working. Sure, Prithvi Shaw's only played one test match and hasn't done well. Doesn't matter. He's out. You know, sure, Ridderman Sahar had, had one ordinary test. He's gone. There's not that same concern about needing to be baby steps as far as changing your team and, and it worked for them. You know, they hit back and won the, the test in Melbourne. So it, it will be interesting to see the differences between the way the two sides go about that part of it. Yeah, and I suppose the next part to that is that David Warner is being declared fit enough but not declared fit. Mm. Now, how often would you see a test opening batsman uh, with all of the roles that Warner plays inside the team, and I don't just mean hitting the ball, but the running between the wickets, the way he scampers around in the outfield and, and so on. I can't really remember a time when a player's been declared not 100% fit going into a test. Of course, that happens with athletes all the time. They just don't telegraph it ahead mm. of time. We just don't get told before the match that you know this player is, isn't playing at full fitness. So that'll be one to watch. But again, perhaps reflective of the fact that Australia have been rolled to 200 three times on the bounce. Um, if Australia were 2-0 up and flying, might they just give Warner mm. that extra week? Again, hard for us to know for sure, but it is an interesting part going in that we'll, we'll probably see two new openers, which will necessitate the omission of Travis Head. It won't be Matthew Wade. Matthew Wade's going to shuffle down in, in that scenario. And Travis Head, when Justin Langer was asked about him yesterday, was far from effusive. Uh, I mean, he, he supported him to the extent to which he reinforced that he's a part of their, you know, he's part of their team and he averages four in Test cricket, mm. said all the nice things, but he stopped well short of confirming that he'll be in the 11. So they've got that wriggle room there to omit head, which 
look, makes sense to me. If that's what they're choosing to do at the top of the order, they've got to find space. And as Lang has said, seven doesn't fit into six and he's the, the logical person to go. But nonetheless, it, it does kind of steer towards your point, Jeff, around being more dynamic uh, than or more willing to make changes than they have been historically when Australian teams tend to be pretty conservative on that front. All right. Plenty coming from the Sydney Test from us with the India Daily over the next few days. Those are the short wraps at the end of play. If you haven't been catching up with those, um, do so. They're also going to be filmed on a visual medium and placed on the internet on these, this this crazy new YouTube channel the kids are talking about. <laughs> That's all to come in the week ahead. Yeah, we, we ended up on social media in, in late 2020 and also on YouTube in late 2020, what, 15 years after <laughs> the, the video platform started. Yeah. But the, the cool thing is that lots of people have watched these videos and we didn't expect that. So I think that largely is down to Cam Fink being a brilliant videographer and he's going to be with us again in Melbourne this week. So we won't be shooting from cricket grounds. We'll be shooting from different locations around uh, this marvellous city of Melbourne. So so, yeah, if you haven't uh, been watching The Final Word Daily, there's that chance this week. And if you are a YouTuber and want to sort of do as people do on YouTube and, and share it and subscribe and hit the bell button or whatever it is, that would be that'd be most appreciated. This is all part of our campaign to uh, one day be named the Joint Kings of Moomba, um, <laughs> which, is, which is all ahead of us. If we can just, you know, take take a film on a on a barge coming down the Yarra or, you know, at the, the top of that, that shit Ferris wheel that breaks every time it gets hot, you know, so, so many great possibilities. The, yeah, I, I've often taken the view, as is Dylan Leach, uh, patron and friend of the show, that the King of Moomba should be allowed to govern the city across the Labor Day weekend each year, so... Uh, mm. We can be not only the King of Moomba, but we can be the King of Melbourne if Dylan gets his way when he's the oh. he's the boss of Victoria one day. Who's to know? Yeah, okay. Um, so a little like uh, the Cameron Ling being made Mayor of Geelong for, yes. for a day. Um, it's the after, same principle after. at hand. If you're named the King of Moomba, it mm. should be more than ceremonial. You should have some mm-hmm. uh, legislative responsibilities across that weekend. <laughs> Uh, a few desperate last-minute pardons before you're <laughs> removed as King of Moomba at the end of the weekend, yes, just you in sh- the dying minutes. Yeah, you shall rule, not reign, as it were. Anyway, uh, one day, <laughs> Jeff, one day. In other things that have been going on, we've had the confirmation of what we knew months ago, I think, which is that uh, the Indian women's team not coming to Australia. They're spitting that as a gain by saying that they'll uh, play more games next summer, so rather than just playing some one-dayers, they'll play one-dayers and T20s together at last. You know, still no multi- part sort of uh, series with a test match involved for any teams other than England, which should not be the case, but yeah, that's been... Uh, that's been put off because the respective boards can't really be bothered putting it together. I don't think I'd be unfair in suggesting that that lack of enthusiasm comes more from the BCCI side of things, given that CA have been keen to get some games on for the national women's team this season. What I found interesting is that we're going to have India and England in Australia in the same summer playing high-profile mm. series ahead of a World Cup. For me, all it does is reinforce why we need to decouple the men's and women's ashes. I mean, I'm all for mm. India's women coming here next year and playing a full series and, like you say, maybe including a test match and having a multi-points format, whatever it takes, really. But I think the women's ashes has matured to a point where it doesn't need to be alongside the men's. And next year, it'll be a, a crammed schedule anyway. It, it, there won't be a lot of oxygen in terms of coverage for the women's game because of the men's ashes going on. So, um, look, I'm sure this won't happen, but 
there are instances like this, examples like this to me, build the case for why we should have women's ashes contest in, in off years to men's to make sure that they both get the coverage they deserve. Some better news, another team that we keep a close eye on, the Irish with another team we keep a close eye on, Afghanistan, um, they are going to be able to play one another in the UAE. There was uh, some kerfuffle saying that this wasn't going to happen because the Afghanistan players couldn't get visas to get into the UAE and, and that was all being chopped around, but they've managed to resolve that. So Ireland, who we were worried about not being able to um, play much cricket in the year to come, they've got four one days against the UAE and then three against Afghanistan um, being played in the Middle East. Um, so a bit of better news for the Irish team. The first time that Ireland have been on the field, I reckon, since they beat England at the Rose Bowl. We mm. talked about that in our New Year's show uh, last week. But, yeah, that's part of the World Cup Super League, which is good in that it's good that these fixtures aren't being postponed or cancelled or whatever. They've, they've made it happen. Also encouraging that we're seeing some pretty resourceful broadcasting of this series. So if you're in the UK or Ireland, as I understand it, it'll be on YouTube. So we're not in that situation where if a TV station doesn't buy the series, it just kind of fades into the ether and you might need to find some, you know, uh, some VPN or some dodgy stream. It's actually being opened up to the public to watch free to access, which I think is pretty cool. So more of that, please, uh, where series are not necessarily uh, being bought up by TV stations. Uh, which is not the case with New Zealand versus Pakistan, which has been on that, that streaming only service over in yeah. New Zealand who, who bought out the ability to, uh, to, to, to broadcast that series, which has been an interesting one for those of our friends and listeners who follow the New Zealand team closely, they've had this interesting thing of watching, you know, Australia, India on the telly and, and their own team in their own country on a streaming service on a, a tablet or a computer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been enjoying the coverage that we're getting in Australia of it, though. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a welcome to the, uh, welcome to 2021 in terms of the way that rights deals and arrangements will be arrived at in the future. Big streaming giants are going to be a, a big part of that. But the series itself, uh, I mean, we, we said on the way into New Zealand, Pakistan a couple of weeks ago, Jeff, this could have uh, significant uh, implications as far as the World Test Championship is concerned and look, New Zealand are well on their way to sweeping this. They've bowled out Pakistan for 297. Uh, they replied with 659 for 6 declared if you don't mind. Kane Williamson, another double ton. He's made, uh, what is it, he's made four Test centuries since the, he's, he's announced that his wife's pregnant or something like that. So 238 um, <laughs> on this occasion. Henry Nichols, his seventh Test ton in just 36 matches, something like that. Daryl Mitchell, 102, not out. His first test century, he made that in 112 balls. Williamson gave him a couple of extra overs to make sure that he made it to triple figures. For Williamson's part, he moves mm. to number one in the ICC rankings, leapfrogging both Coley and Smith, much to the deep, deep frustration of Coley fans on Twitter a couple of nights ago who were losing their shit as one uh, upon realising that Kane Williamson had, had gone above their boy. But, yeah, he's on an incredible <laughs> run. He's, he's fourth, uh, yeah, his fourth century in, in four test matches at home this summer. I brushed over the, the bowling figures for New Zealand in the first inning. So after bowling Pakistan out for 297, they went on and made that mountainous score. But Carl Jamison, 5 for 69. I think he's becoming everybody's favourite, Jeff. Uh, he, he was at it again last night. They gave themselves a few overs at Pakistan before the close. Uh, eight for one uh, at Stumps on day mm. three. But Jamison already has a wicket. Shah Massoud edged to, edged to the cordon and Tim Southey made no mistake. But yeah, Jamison, six wickets in the match. He, as I pointed out on Twitter, will be formidable if New Zealand do make that final. And look, a lot needs to go right. Australia needs to 
pump India in the last two games and England need to do likewise mm. when they visit India in February and March. But if New Zealand did make that final and Carl Jamison was running down the slope at Lords, that would be that would be quite something given the, the kind of bounce he gets and the angle that he gets from that height. It, it would be a great contest seeing him bowl at Lords. Yeah, the the nastiness of the way he gets lift at the gloves, particularly, has has stood out. Um, so, th- yeah, three three hundreds in three tests from Kane Williamson, six hundred and thirty nine runs in his last three test matches. That's wow. that's in four innings. It's it's truly remarkable. And Jeff, in the other test match that was taking place, which started on the third of January. Uh, South Africa easily accounted for Sri Lanka once again. So Sri Lanka were all out for 157 and 211. So not much fight there with the bat. And between times, uh, South Africa made 302 in their first innings. Dean Elgar made a big century at the top of the list and they knocked off the 67 they needed to win without losing a wicket with the ball. We talked about Nokia last week being a real force for good through 2020. Well, he started 2021 in good nick. Six for 56 uh, in that first innings, bowling quickly and and scarily, really. Uh, and in the second dig, he picked up a, a couple more, Lungi and Gini, Forfa. So, all told, there's a few bits and pieces to take from that, Jeff. The first is that they've played two test matches in South Africa in a bubble. Sri Lanka have made it through the other side, as best we understand it, happy and healthy. Mm. It's going to build the case that Australia might need to go there next month and I don't think an awful lot of planning's gone into that as yet as far as I understand they've been so focused on getting this India series dealt with and for South Africa's part getting Mm. the Sri Lanka series dealt with that they haven't quite turned their attention to how they're going to make it all line up if Australia do go there uh, in the middle of February but the clock is ticking Yep, well I I think we've um, we've pondered the possibilities of that and it it does still seem that a tour that starts in mid-February in the current environment is much less desirable than one that starts in in mid-March for a host of reasons. But uh, I suppose we have to keep watching and keep waiting on that. It's almost no point speculating about anything in the world at the moment because everything's so vastly changeable and and who knows how quickly things could shift. Uh, Another important development, and, and one very much in our areas is that the Kaidazam final, the first class domestic final in Pakistan, ended in a tie. And it didn't just end in a tie, it ended in a tie off the back of a ridiculous counter-attacking 100 from Hassan Ali. Long a favourite of the final word, uh, the way that he's bowled for Pakistan, particularly in the the 50-over format. Uh, I think that's where, it's safe to say that's where we fell for Hassan Ali the first time, where our eyes first met. (laughs) Uh, But he's always been an entertaining, enterprising lower-order batsman, the kind who just likes to take the ball on and baseball pretty much everything that comes his way which is backed up by a, a test batting strike rate of 93 one day a strike rate of 113 and a t20 strike rate of 174 um likes to hit the ball Hassan Ali but came out made 100 off about 60 balls to rescue his side and got them scores level and then the number 11 batsman was dismissed, chipping one to mid on going for the glory shot down the ground and didn't get enough of it and it ended up being a tie. So they share the trophy which is a, a nice touch. No, Nobody getting screwed New Zealand style here on some 
bizarre technicality. They keep the trophy between both teams and everybody got to go home happy. What a scorecard. So Hassan Ali walks in with the score 6 for 202. It quickly becomes 7 for 202. And then he makes 106 dot out from 61 balls with seven sixes. And yeah, they're bowled out for 355. So he makes those runs at a strike rate of 174, as you say. Talk about not dying wondering. But yeah, it was the final of the first class competition and it's the 67th tie in first class cricket since 1783. But encouragingly, the 12th Mm -hmm. since 2002. So it's happening more and more. So we've had 12 in 18 or 19 years, depending on how you want to interpret that. So yeah, that that was a a, a thrilling way to start the new year as far as uh, cricket badges and nerds are concerned, seeing the 67th tie. And what we might do, Jeff, is get one of our Pakistan correspondents to come and talk to us a little bit more about that final and and add some colour to it. Mm. It sounds like an incredible finish. Yes, so the tie between Khyber Pakhtunkhwa and Central Punjab finishing scores level. Thanks to Hassan Ali, who was, who was captaining that side as well when he pulled off this particular feat to a fast bowler skippering and making a ton down the order, the stuff of dreams. And that, there's no, can be no argument this week as to who is the CBUS super performer of the week. It <laughs> must be, it shall be, it, it may always be Hassan Ali, who went into bat for his team much like Seabus goes into bat for their members, whether on site or at the crease. You can visit seabussuper.com.au. Today, you can do it today. Um, you can get a PDS there to find out if Seabus is the right superannuation provider for you. And you can remember that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance, as it was for Hassan Ali with his first century in any form of professional cricket to take his team to that memorable result. I mentioned last week uh, that it's now cbussuper.com.au forward slash the final word, which I think is pretty oh, cool. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. This is the fourth mm-hmm. year we've been working with CBUS in, in one form or another, 2021. We're just chuffed to be part of their family uh, as we are to have them part of ours. And, uh, yeah, sort out your super. Jump on there, cbussuper.com.au forward slash the final word and take a look. Now, we're almost... At the break. We're almost at Stuart McGill. We just have time for a little fun, a little frivolity, uh, a little game that we like to call Nerd Pledge. Sometimes I say that loudly. Today I didn't just like to keep you on your toes. Uh, it's early the in the morning. It's nerd it's Pledge! <laughs> it's early in the morning for us, let's be honest. We're not n- normally recording at eight in the morning. So I, I appreciate yeah. your, your relative lack of enthusiasm. And I've had about... 20 minutes sleep after the, you know, aforementioned yep. baby stuff. So I'm, I'm happy to go with the sort of the chilled approach today. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say it's a lack of enthusiasm. I'd just say it's, uh, we're just being understated. You know, sometimes you can't be single paced. <laughs> we don't want to be a single speed economy <laughs> in terms of enthusiasm. That doesn't make sense. I am tired. Look, Nerd Pledge, it's a game. It's a game that we play with people out there in the world, further away from us than Adam and I are from each other right now. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a numbers game. It's a quiz game. It's a game where people send us a number. And what they do is they support the show by becoming a patron supporter and they send us a number of dollars and cents. But that relates to a cricket number and we have to work out what the cricket number is. Two numbers on the show today. We will be doing our long story time version on the weekend, which is where we take these numbers and wander off through history. So if you like your cricket nerdery, that's where to come. There will be many numbers on this weekend's show because we have a lot of catching up to do. But for today, 
We're coming in, starting it off with a double header. This number has come in from Tom Humphreys and from Sam King. The number is $2.35. That could be a range, you know, that decimal point could be wherever you want. But if you had 235 in sequence, Adam, what might that suggest to you? Well, it's got some strong England vibes to start with. So Douglas Jardine was the 235th man to play test cricket for England. The man who led mm-hmm. them to victory in the Ashes series of 1932-33. Boo. Alistair Cook Boo. made 235 at the Gabba some 10 years ago, or 10 and a bit years ago now, mm-hmm. um, against Australia. It's a number that a lot of England fans love. Ian Bell's high scoring test cricket was also 235 against India at the Oval in, in 2011. So I'll group those together. There's an England theme there. Mm-hmm. If, if Tom or Sam were using any of those uh, three stories to get to 235, I'll consider that a tick for us. But two others I wanted to quickly touch on. Uh, one was mm-hmm. uh, the 235th Test Cricketer for South Africa's men. That was John Tracos. Now, at some point, we'll do the John Tracos story in, in more depth, but the cliff notes are as follows. He was an off-spinner for South Africa as like a 22-year-old, made his debut in that really famous series against Australia in 1970 mm-hmm. when they walloped Bill Laurie's tourists, and that was the last series before isolation, of course, uh, through apartheid. So he makes his... Debut as expected, but then they're, they're shut out of international cricket. But he returns to international cricket in 1992 for Zimbabwe, a 22-year gap uh, between test caps and when they were first admitted to test cricket. Uh, he uh, got a start there and retired well into his mid-40s. So John Tracos, having had a gap of 22 years and having you know changed countries, as it were, between times, uh, he in itself, it's one of the more interesting test careers so I'll, I'll mention John Tracos and, and leave him there for the time being he was the 11th man I should say to play for Zimbabwe mm. of course he was in, in their inaugural test 11 back in 1992 he finished in 93 so that span of 23 years but only having played in three of them one other though Jeff which I reckon you're going to absolutely love uh, Warren Bardsley who we mm. talked about a few weeks ago I can't quite work out why but he came up on story time he was the champion Australian left-hander played test cricket between 1909 through to 1926 41 test matches six tons but a prolific career one of the champions of his generation in the space of a month in 1920 though jeff in the space of a month playing for new south wales he made 235 twice against the same opposition so against south mm. australia at the scg in december of 1920 he made 235 coming in at number five in a total of 802 it was the era of huge scores, as we know. And then the next month, so January of 1921, coming in as the opener on that occasion in New South Wales' second innings, he made 235 again against the same bowling attack, more or less, and, and the same side, but this time they were at the Adelaide Oval. So I just thought that was uh, one of those quirky instances where history repeats. And uh, I know mm. we've had a few of those on the final word in recent times and on story time. And that's a good one. And that's almost exactly 100 years ago. Uh, what, what day yes. did he make the 235? Oh, uh, bang on. Well, well pointed out. It was on... <laughs> hey, how about this? So the, the second of those started on, on the 7th of January, which is the, the day that this test match is starting in Sydney this week, albeit that was the Adelaide game, not the Sydney game. But nevertheless, that would have been second innings. So let's assume it was about the 10th or 11th of January. So in hindsight, maybe mm-hmm. we'd have, we should have held this number back for story time this weekend to have made it exactly 100 years. But we will think of Warren Bardsley this week and knowing that he made one of his 
twin two three fives in the summer of 1921. I look forward to the Warren Bardsley Pink Test this week, where we will commemorate the hundredth anniversary of that score. I was also looking at some two three fives in case uh, Tom Humphreys or Sam King had things more to my way of thinking than yours. One thing I noticed is that my brain, which has been perennially broken on this front by a friend of the show, Dan Liebke, in that I can't say Ryan Harris, I have to say sexy Ryan Harris. (laughs) Uh, Sexy Ryan Harris averaged with the ball in Test Cricket 23.5, which is also the number that we were sent, which is a worthwhile number, you know, from somebody who didn't get to play anywhere near as many Test matches as he probably should have sexy Ryan Harris he was just too sexy and his body could not contain I was gonna say couldn't carry the load but that would be a wrong thing to say in this situation uh, but let's move along his body so, was too, so that- too sexy to contain a shirt as goes the mm. as goes the song oh yeah as as we've had um, we've had some Latin suggestions sent through for the Proteus crest um, regarding the lack of a shirt and, and the, <laughs> the unwillingness to wear a shirt um, that that needs to become the motto under Faf's team crest. So we'll look at those on story time as well. The Latin suggestions we've had come through. But the other thing that occurred to me with two three five is that it's the team score that got. India into the series last time they toured here and when they beat Australia 2-1 to go with the theme of of what's happening this week because it was the Adelaide Oval last time when India looked short on their first innings, got bowled out for 250 when Pajara made that ton on the first day. But then they bowled out Australia for 235 with this very disciplined team bowling performance from Ishant, Bumrah, Shami and Ravichandran Ashwin they bowled out Australia for 235 and went on to win that test match and so maybe maybe that's relevant to this week I know that you like these curiosities of sequence mm. Adam no one no team made 235 in test cricket until 1952 and then India made it four of the first five times it was made um, a test <laughs> innings of 235 and on that uh, I, I neglected to mention earlier one for you 238 Kane Williamson's 238 mm. That was the lowest score not made in Test cricket until yesterday. I read somewhere on social media. I hope I've interpreted that correctly. But uh, two, three, eight—that's uh, a number that I think Rick Finlay has looked at in the past, isn't it? Where it's the I, lowest I, score I not made. I think there might be two. I think maybe two, two, nine, or or something around there. There might be one other, but yeah, like the, the, uh, there are only a couple of you know scores around that range that haven't right. been made. So two, three, eight's been ticked off. It's off the bingo card yes. as of yesterday. Oh, tough. Big red line through that one, um, and and now we've only got maybe a couple under three hundred to go. I know Rick's kept a very close eye on that. Right. So thank you, Tom Humphreys, and thank you, Sam King, for two three five. Our other number today, Jeff, is six thirty. So six dollars thirty, six pounds thirty, six mm-hmm. euro and thirty euro cents. I'm not sure that's how you meant to say it, but we'll go with it. <laughs> the euro cent. What a what a wasted fractional <laughs> currency. The euro cent. Oh, that'll be ninety nine euro cents if you don't mind. Uh, Jeff, the clue was old spinners, and that's all mm. you needed. Oh, that's all you need. Tell us to find an old spinner in Test cricket. That's what we do in the final word. We dig around through the archives for really old spinners, that is, uh, spinners who played a long time ago, and hopefully were really old when they did so because you don't need to be young and sprightly to shuffle up to the crease and float one down. 6.30, it could only be the work of Hugh Trumbull 
who played in the you know eighteen nineties and early nineteen hundreds. Hugh Trumbull is is known now for that mark of one hundred and forty one Test wickets that Nathan Lyon went past, which is why Nathan Lyon was sort of tongue in cheek given the nickname of Goat, the greatest of all time finger spinner for Australia. But and there's kind of some humour in it in that 141 doesn't seem very high, but 141 used to be massive when, you know, you had to get on a boat for six months to go and play a test mm. series and there were a couple of world wars floating around and, and all of the rest of it. So 141 was, was a big mark from Trumbull, who was a, a tall, fast off-spinner and, and took big bags when the conditions were in his favour. So in 1896 at the Oval, he took six for 59 in the first innings and then six for 30, which would be Adam's number, Adam Jones's number, in the second innings. So 12 for 89 and still lost the test match because Australia got bowled out for 44 in the last innings, um, chasing 111. And poor old Trumbull. He, he was up against another old spinner we've talked about a lot, who was Bobby Peel, the slow left arm drunk, who was just always hammered, but managed to take six for 23 himself while bowling Australia out in that second innings and won the test match. Um, so Trumbull got Bobby Peel out in both innings, but Bobby Peel had the last laugh while pouring a bottle of brandy over it. Uh, six for 30. It's got to be Hugh Trumbull. Doesn't it, Adam Jones? Let me know. If we're wrong, drop us a message and we'll look at it on the weekend show. Hugh Trumbull, he loved big bags. That should be the the line Mm. that goes with him from now until eternity. I think that'll do, Jeff. I think we've got Nerd Pledge all dealt with for another week. If you want to be part of what we do on Nerd Pledge, patreon.com forward slash the final word to join our beautiful little community. We went back into the inbox over the last few days and were greeted with a number of lovely messages from people wishing us well over Christmas and New Year and that was just so nice to reply to all of those and to know that it's going to be another fantastic year in 2021 in that patron forum. So uh, join up, be part of what we're doing, get involved in the Storytime show which returns this Sunday morning. It will be dropping if we get all of our ducks in a row and then every week thereafter through 2021 and the best way to be involved in that is to submit a nerd pledge, patreon.com forward slash the final word. Let us take a moment to collect our thoughts and then we'll be back with Stuart McGill. Jeff, for the first time in 2021, let's talk about Zolio. Zolio, Adam, it's the thing. It might save your life. Uh, It might just save your day. It's a magic box that turns your phone into a satellite communications device. How can this be, Jeff? You say, how can this be? Well, I don't understand. I imagine it's something to do with small yet powerful demons who have been harnessed and trapped inside this small box, but they're very firmly trapped inside it. They can't get out. So consider this, if you will, a little a little box like this, the size of an old-fashioned pack of smokes a bit smaller actually maybe really small smokes maybe like the ones cigarettes be able to cigarillos sell to what they called the little tiny ones yeah the fads you know <laughs> that they had to turn them into because and, and take the little cherry tip red ends off because that wasn't the done thing anymore and big boss cigars had to become big boss dynamite sticks because that's much safer you want to encourage children to put dynamite sticks in their mouths i, th- I since we've gone, gone off track already nonetheless look this is you get the little box you turn it on, it's got a crazy battery that lasts for, I think mine ran for about 12 days without needing a recharge. And then that just connects to your phone and then it connects you to the satellite network. And so literally anywhere on the planet, you can send a text message or an email to whoever you want. 
you can, as long as you have their phone number or their email address, it'll reach them. It's, it's magic like that. And uh, so you can be in communication no matter how remote you are or what dead spot of uh, phone coverage you're in in one of our major cities. Either way, as long as there's sky above you, you can send a message on one of these magic devices. I, I like your slug off the top there, Jeff. Solio, it might save your life. I was thinking you might mm. do a little rhyming couplet like Beck Cartwright did all those years ago when she married Leighton Hewitt when she declared that... Um, yeah. Uh, how do they go again? It goes, um, I can't wait to be your wife. Together we're going to have a bloody good life. <laughs> I think that was, the, that was the, the, the final part of the poem that she wrote for Leighton at their wedding reception. Anyway, don't know why that and, came to and, mind. And, and was she wrong? You know, I mean, was she, you know, have, haven't they? They probably have as far as we know. I, I expect mean, so. We haven't heard. That maybe Zolio no could maybe Zolio. poem. Yeah, Zolio could go with that maybe. Uh, Zolio, it might save your life or it might save that of your wife. It's, it's true. It, it might. It wouldn't be a breach of advertising standards and guidelines and the law. Consider it. We'll be your advertiser. We'll be your marketing department. We'll write your copy. We're here for you, Zolio. Just like you're there for people who walk up mountains or, or go to obscure places and explore mm. the great outdoors. And you've got to have it in your pocket. You've got to have it attached to your belt. Instead of a pack of smokes... Put a Zolio on your belt. It'll mean you never... Much it, healthier. Much healthier. And the probability of getting lost in the woods or, or something like that um, diminishes mm. exponentially. Yeah. Well, more to the point, you can get lost in the woods, but you have unlimited SOS messaging ah. to send to a, a 24-7 well-monitored security line that will send a, a rescue team to extract you. That's I a much better spin. That, 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 that's a, that, sorry, I'm, I'm, that's a mm. much better spin on this. Like, the, uh, yeah, if you, you know, want to get lost in the woods, that's up to you. Go for it. But you, you want to make sure you can get out again. You know, have an exit strategy. I found the poem for you, Adam. The, okay. the last stanza says, It's safe to say I'll love you more and more. And marrying you today, I couldn't be more sure. Rebecca Hewitt, I'm your wife. I promise you one thing, stick with me and you'll have a bloody good life. <laughs> so I like that because that, that's, that's not just about she and Leighton having a good life. That's saying you need to... Stay in this situation. Don't, 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 don't wander outside the tram tracks. Don't try to play doubles when we're playing singles, you know, um, because there's, there's a condition attached to that. Kim Kleisters is not invited. This is a purely no. singles environment, this marriage. The conventional rules are stipulated in the Marriage Act. This is a one-on-one -on -one hit up um, from from one end to another. That's it. No, no, no linesmen, no ball boys. Right. Look, I, th I think that's all we need to tell you about Zolio. You can find them at zolio.com, z-o-l-e-o.com, and you can find Rebecca Cartwright's wedding poem by googling it. That's this is what you get on the final word. It'll save your life. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. First and foremost, Stuart, where do we find you? Give us a sense of where you are at the moment and, uh, and what you're up to. Okay, so it's been, a, it's been already a big day for me. It's about uh, 8.15, 8.20, I guess, around uh, in Sydney. I'm in Cremorne, near North Sydney in, in New South Wales. My missus and I have a restaurant now. Maria and I have a restaurant, a Greek restaurant in Neutral Bay, and so I've been working all day, and you guys are the reason that I don't have to work tonight, so I'm very, very <laughs> pleased with you. 
So talk us through that. So how long have you had the restaurant for? And are you on the tools yourself? Are you in there day to day, sort of getting people in there and so forth? Or are you behind the scenes running the show? Look, I'm definitely not in the kitchen. I think that would be a bad mistake, although probably washing dishes is where I belong. But Maria's Greek. It's a Greek restaurant. All the recipes are hers. She designed the whole place. And so what I am is, I guess, you know, I'm a fluffer. It's a technical term. I'm not sure if you're familiar (laughs) with it. I I make sure that everybody who comes in the door is um, well-fed and always very liquid. We've got a leg spinner on the show who absolutely shredded the ball. Why is leg spin bowling so exciting? Why do people love it more than pretty much anything else in cricket? I think if um, you've got to understand there's sort of different layers. If a leg spin bowler, and we can put Mitch Swepson in here right now, you know, very topical, if you're prepared to take a deep breath and run in and give it everything you've got. I think it's particularly exciting for people watching because you're either going to get a wicket or you're going to get hit for six. <laughs> so, so it's kind of, it's, it's, it, it sums the sport up for me. Uh, you know, we still only bowl between, let's say, 78 and 95 kilometres an hour. So we bowl slow. Your grandmother could hit us for six. But if we get it right, she probably couldn't hit you for six two balls in a row. (laughs) And I think that's the really, really exciting thing. And the look on a batsman's face when they're confused about what's happened, I think everybody who watches cricket really loves to see it. It's the same with pace or (laughs) proper swing, but wrist spin, extreme pace, proper swing, that's good cricket. In terms of how you started your career trajectory in becoming a leg spinner, I mean, obviously you, you were following in the footsteps of your dad and your grandfather in Western Australia, but was it always going to be leg spin for, your, for you or, or if it wasn't, how did it, how did it come to pass? So, so my dad played about, I, I, uh, I'm not sure exactly, let's say a dozen games for Western Australia between about 68 and 72, somewhere around there, and he was a leg spin bowler. But he also could bat, uh, uh, you know, unlike me. So every kid wants to follow in his father's footsteps. But dad's best mate when I was growing up was Dennis Lilly. And so I wanted to be Dennis. If I, <laughs> I, I wanted to be fast and nasty and cool. I think the last bit is the, the number one thing for me. I, when I was growing up, even as a little boy, Dennis was, he was cool even for kids. You know, and um, I just wanted to be him. And then I must have been about six or seven years old and I realised I couldn't bowl fast. I, I, I don't know what it was. I just, I just wasn't, I wasn't fast. And I was in the front garden of my best mate's house, Michael Simpson, and we were bowling to each other and, uh, you know, playing cricket in the back garden like normal kids do. And Michael's dad said to me, he said, oh, that was a, a, a googly. And I didn't even know what it was. I didn't, I didn't know what he was talking about. But I just thought, well, at least I can do one thing. And so I kept trying to bowl fast until I was about 12 or 13 and then just really gave it away and just started ripping it as much as I could. I don't know if I bowl like my dad, but... I knew that he bowled wrist spin and that made me feel good. And did it become quite apparent to you as you were going through 
those early stages of, I suppose, junior rep cricket and grade cricket in, in WA, which is a notoriously tough school to play in, that you had certain, not gifts, but that you, know, you could do things that other people couldn't do who were kind of comparable to you, your peers, and that it was possible you were going to have a, a professional cricketing career. Actually, um, so I, I played at school. So I went to a boys' school and, and so we, we only played at school. And so when I was 16 and 17, so I only played one year of first 11. When I was about 16, I couldn't bowl a leg break. I could only bowl a wrong one because I'd been trying for so long to bowl a wrong one. That's the only thing I could bowl. And I was playing in the second 11. Actually, Dan Marsh, who, um, mm. you know, played a, a huge amount of games for Tasmania, captain Tasmania, coach Tasmania, great player. And he could bat as well, unfortunately, and I couldn't. But he played in the first 11 instead of me for a long period of time. And I had to teach myself how to bowl a leg break again. And if you imagine my bowling, quite often people think I'm looking up because I'm trying to keep my head up. I was actually trying to see where my hand was so that I could make sure that my wrist was in the right position when I let go of the ball. And that's why my head's always up when I bowl because I just couldn't bowl a leg break for a couple of years. So it was certainly not, you know, preordained or, you know, destined for me to play proper cricket. I, I, I wanted to because I wanted to be like Dennis and I wanted to be like, you know, all the cool West Indian guys, you know, but I didn't, I was never going to do it. I, I was nowhere until I was about 19 or 20. When it did start to work for you, it started working pretty fast. You moved to yeah. New South Wales in the mid nineties. Uh, you know, a year or two later, you had that. I was huge... twenty five then, mind you. Yeah, well, that's, and that was kind of my question: was that you've got that rush where you have a huge Sheffield Shield season for New South Wales, you get picked for your first test, and that yeah. happens quite quickly. But you know, did it feel like it was happening quickly at the time, or, or did it feel like it had it had been a much longer wait because of that time that it had taken? Uh, to get well, to so point. bearing in mind and for, 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 you know, those of you who are watching who, you know, are a little bit younger than me, <laughs> so I'm old. Uh, so in 1991, I went to the Cricket Academy in Adelaide. Then I came back and I'd already been in the state squad in WA, so the Sheffield Shield squad for a year at that point. I was in the Sheffield Shield squad in Western Australia for five years in total and only played once. I was 12th yeah. man half a dozen times, but just played one game and didn't really get anywhere. So at the age of 24, turning 25, I just decided, look, I've spent a lot of time on this. I'm uneducated. And what I mean by that is I hadn't completed anything post school. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was very lucky. My parents are both school teachers. And so I had the opportunity to have access to a good education, but I didn't do anything after school. I just tried to play cricket and I wasn't getting anywhere in Perth. And I just thought, you know what, having spent so much time at this, I've got to decide whether or not I'm going to give it away or put all my cards on the, on the table. And I looked around Australia and I just thought, you know what, if you're going to play shield cricket in Australia as a spin bowler, from grade cricket because there were no promises given to me by any state side. Moved to New South Wales. I think there were seven spin bowlers in the state squad in New South Wales at the time. And I just thought, 
take a deep breath, move to New South Wales, do well in club cricket, you'll get picked for New South Wales, and then we'll see what happens. And at that stage, state cricket was just about all I was looking for. You know, I just wanted to mm. do what my family had done and be proud of myself and make them proud. And there's this interesting note that, that Stephen Donoghue has put in the chat here that pretty much the same time as you go over to New South Wales, Adam Gilchrist heads to Western mm. Australia, and it's a, a massive turning point for both of you. Yeah, I would say Gilly and I were at the, uh, at the AIS together, at the, at the Cricket Academy together, and he moved to Perth the year before I went to Sydney, and I actually, I think he had a much harder run than me too because, so to give you some context, in my year at the Cricket Academy, he was probably the best batsman. <laughs> Forget about keeping. He, he was, the guy was a genius, right? And until he got picked for Australia, Ian Healy, I think he made four test hundreds, three or four test hundreds, and that was the record internationally. I think Gilly made 20. <laughs> you know, the guy's a, a superstar of the universe. Um, and... He was getting a lot of pressure because, as you, I'm sure you know, WA is pretty colloquial and um, cross the border at, at your own peril. We look after our own. And that also was very interesting for me because I watched what happened to Gilly when he moved to Perth and then I moved to Sydney and I had a very, very different experience. I was made to feel almost immediately like I was a part of the furniture and um, that was even before I'd been given a game. So uh, it was, this was a, was, was a great move for me on a number of levels. And it works so well uh, on the field as well, as you say, you go from great cricket to the state team, you, you clean up, you clean up for New South Wales in 97, 98, a number of big bags and you get that sort of end of season charts, which becomes a bit of a, a pattern of your career, getting a test match towards the end of a end of a summer. But the first of those against South Africa at Adelaide Oval in, in January 1998. And I think it's fair to say most people watched you bowl in that test match and you out-bowled Shane Warne. You bowled in terms of the, the, the performance across the two innings, but the wickets in the second dig, you know, picking up Callis for your first test wicket, yeah, um, knocking over Lance Clues in the first ball. I mean, as I recall, the sense was, wow, maybe leg spinners can coexist in the Australian 11. It wasn't without precedent, but hadn't been done for a long time. And is that how you felt that you immediately weren't necessarily competing for a spot with Warren right there, that there might be a world where the two of you could potentially play together a little bit? Well, look, I, I um, and I'm not just saying this, I, I, I look at things slightly differently. <laughs> surprise, surprise. I look at things slightly differently to a lot of people. And I never competed with anybody apart from myself throughout my career. And the reason I did it that way is because, in my opinion, Shane is the most gifted and most naturally gifted wrist spin bowler. It, it's, it was just everything was easy for him biomechanically. It was just all good for him. Whereas I know the fight I had every time I took off from the top of my mark. So first of all, I was absolutely shocked and stunned to get picked for that right. test match. I, I, I was just shocked. I remember reading the paper the day they selected it <laughs> and thinking to myself, well, you know, they'll probably pick Freddie, David Friedman, because, you know, well, first of all, I said to myself, well, I don't know why they dropped Bebo anyway. 
but they'll probably pick Freddie because he's, you know, he's a great bowler and, you know, he's more experienced. And I hadn't really played much then, maybe seven or eight games, I guess, for New South Wales. And I was shocked. And then I thought they were only picking me in the squad because Australia was touring India following that South African series. And it turns out I was the only guy in the whole squad that didn't know that Paul Rifle had broken his finger the game before. <laughs> so <laughs> it turns out I was always going to play. It's just nobody had told me. I even told my parents <laughs> the night before. I said to them, look, don't worry about coming over. I can't see how I'm going to get into this team because it's, you know, it's a great, I don't know how I'm going to get picked. And fortunately, they decided to come anyway, <laughs> which was good. But I was absolutely stunned. I only found out, we ran onto the field to do the warm-up, and I only found out then. And uh, Mark Taylor actually said, it's, you know, paraphrased, but he said, yeah, hey, guys, uh, and he brought us all in just before we do the lap for warm-up. He said, guys, um, as you all know, Pistol's broken his little finger, and so Stuart uh, McGill is the 374th uh, player to play for Australia. And even like, as you can see, even now it's like, hmm. you know, and I, I was, that was the first time I found out. And he go, and I, I just, I, I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. Still can't believe it. Luckiest man alive. <laughs> and, and like, what do you do in that moment? Like, how do you <laughs> try to cope with that? Well, they gave so Tubby gave me the cap, right? And um, so I do wear the caps because for me, I'm quite into the the history of the game, and all the old guys always used to wear the the, the caps. So that's that's what I wear. You know, okay, sure, I might have my ears cut off because of skin cancer, but I wear the cap because that's what they all used to wear. So that's why. It's not – that's – I want to be a part of the team, you know. <laughs> and um, it gave me the cap. And I got a massive head, by the way. <laughs> so that they, apparently they had to look around for a big one, so, um, <laughs> which is kind of funny. But he gave me the cap and I put it on. So I had a, um, you know, the warm-up baseball hat that you, you know, warm up in. I put the baggy green on, first of all. And then I took it off because I didn't want to look like a dick. You know, I, I wanted to be cool. I wasn't cool. I still not cool, but I wanted to just be cool. So I took the baggy green off and I put it on the ground next to all our gear and put the baseball cap on and did a lap with the team. But the whole way around the ground, I was like looking over to make sure nobody jumped the fence to steal it. So, and, and I honestly thought somebody's going to leap the fence, steal my cap. That's it. I'm done. So that's what you do. <laughs> and then you don't get to play. Those are the rules. No, that's well, that's what I thought. You lose your cap. It's all over. <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant. So the next bite of the cherry gets in Pakistan and you do so well. Distinctly remember in Royal Pindi, you're bowling the house down there against Pakistan. You know, when Warren's not playing, you get that chance as the number one spinner. And that continues through to the 98-99 Ashes series where you really then have laid a big marker. I mean, that first test at Brisbane where you're ragging at miles on the final day before the hailstorm comes. I mean, yeah, but don't forget the first felt- innings. I bowled absolute junk at the beginning of the first innings. So I was <laughs> terrified. And... Um, in the first innings, even though I'd already played in Adelaide, so it wasn't technically my first test in Australia, 
I hadn't expected to play that test against South Africa, whereas this right. one for me was my first planned excursion into mm. domestic test cricket. And I was a little bit nervous and it was the ashes. And yep. I did, I, 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 look, I think my first wicket I got, oh, I don't even, I don't know if it was my first wicket, but one of my first wickets in the first innings was Alex Stewart. He might have been 100 or something. He swept me, he swept a full toss to deep backward square leg and got caught like unluckiest man in the universe. It was just absolute junk. And I was nervous. But what happened to me, and you, you mentioned Pakistan, when Shane was not available, it meant that I felt responsible for everything that happened from a spin bowling point of view. And it, it wasn't, as much about opportunity for me as it was if I don't do it here, mm. then there's nobody else to do it. And so I kind of liked that. Uh, it happened the same for me with New South Wales. My first really good game for New South Wales, Greg Matthews broke his ankle on day two or, yeah, day two of a first-class game against New Zealand. And I was the only spin bowler. So if I don't do it, who's going to do it? And it made a big difference to me. And I, I remember thinking in Pakistan, you know what? I've got to do it because I'm the spin bowler. And yeah. in Brisbane at the Gabba, I had friends there, which made it a little bit more creepy for me. I bowled nervously early. But in the second innings, we had a little mm. bit of a sniff. And I, was, I remember being really excited and thinking, I'm going to be the guy. And that was the first wrong that I bowled in test cricket was Nasser Hussain. And, and um, mm -hmm. I remember thinking before I bowled it, are you sure you want to do it? Are you, are you sure this is the right thing to do? Do you really think that you should be doing this? <laughs> the arguments going on upstairs were ridiculous. You know, nowhere near as many conversations as are happening at the moment upstairs, but th there was still a lot of them. Well, that's amazing to think your first wrong in test cricket. I mean, that's a ball that gets replayed even now when when, when looking at sort mm. of miracle balls from leg spinners and, and so on. That, that, that you gets said a it was a miracle. You said it was a miracle. I guess what I'm saying is that that's the sort of delivery that typifies the early part of your career, that you can turn one the other way big as well. And I, mean, I know Australia don't win that test match due to the, the hail and, and all the rest, but it looks like you were going to bowl England out in that test and that, and that Hussein delivery. I promise you we were going to win that. And by the way, that storm was actually one of the highlights of my career as well. So it was one of the greatest storms of all time. Three o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> and it was midnight. You know, it was, it was unbelievable. But I guarantee you, one, one thing that maybe has stuck with me through my career was that when a team that I was a part of had a sniff, 99% of the time we won because we knew we were going to do it. Mm. And I remember very clearly on that day thinking we're winning this test match and I'm going to be the guy to do it. And so I was a bit bummed about the rain, but it was such a good storm. It was kind of okay. <laughs> <laughs> when you're talking about being nervous and like bowling badly in that first innings, how does that manifest? Like does it physically affect the way that you can 
deliverable, you know, given yeah. league spin bowling is so physically complex. So before my first test against South Africa, you know, in the January of that same year, I'd done, I'd, I'd had a, a good season for New South Wales. I think I might have had, I don't know, 40 wickets or something for New South Wales leading up to that. I'd been bowling very well. Everything was going well. Then Mark Taylor threw me the ball in the first innings of that test and I'm standing at the top of my mark and literally, <laughs> so I had the ball in my hand, Adam Barker, he was on strike and I remember looking down at him wondering whether or not the ball was going to hit the ground. <laughs> I ran into bowl thinking, I'm going to bowl a fully, this is going to be shit. And when you're wondering about how nerves manifest in a spin bowler. And it's not just for me. It's about, you think about a, a you know, 10-year-old kid who's, you know, playing in North Sydney. This is something that we worry about all the time because worst case scenario, it can't get much worse because we do bowl slow. And if you bowl a full toss, it's going to go, if not to the boundary on the fall, it's going to go one bounce. And it happens over and over and over again. And then, look, I guess you do occasionally, when you move up the levels, think about the ramifications, you know, so who's watching. So if you're playing a test match against India, you know how many people are watching. You know, if, you, you know, if you're playing for New South Wales, you've got all of that history that you're disrespecting when you bowl poorly. But if you're on top of your game, it might pop into your mind, but then you get rid of it straight away. And that's kind of the key. But, man, I, I can tell you it's a very, very common thing. I'll never have a go at, a, at, at anybody, spin bowler, fast bowler, unless I'm playing against them, by the way. If I'm playing against them, I'll have a go at them. But, but, but I, I'll never have a go at somebody who the moment gets to them because it, every single moment mm. in cricket is like a penalty kick in soccer, in, you know, in football. It's huge expectation. And you think a batsman can't hit the ball until I've let go of it. And if I mess it up, maybe he won't be able to reach it. You know, it's like there's a lot of pressure there. And, um, <laughs> but, you know, fortunately, all you've got to do is bowl 10 good ones in innings. A couple of parts to, to flow from that. So the first of which is, I guess, that mindset of knowing that, I think John Harms, the Melbourne writer, once said that off-spinners are like sociologists, conservative, in the runway, inside the tram tracks, turning a doorknob, and leg spinners are like historians. They take risks, they, they say outlandish things, they spin the ball a mile, and you need to kind of accept that being a leg spinner, that it's high risk, high reward, but also when it doesn't go right, it can be quite a chastening experience but you're going through that by the sounds of things when perhaps you aren't necessarily right at the peak of your powers if you're battling through a spell that is going through your mind each ball this might be going over the rope but I need to do it anyway I need to find a way through that you know six times and over over and over again knowing that you're doing you're practicing the the most high risk most volatile craft in the sport and and if you can imagine that's ball one of my over (laughs) <laughs> Imagine then I get hit for four, four, four. What's going through my mind? Fourth ball of the over, mm. and part of the, I guess, part of the, you know, well, the key I would suggest 
is being able to walk back to the top of your mark and forget that you've gone, forget what happened the ball before. Just keep focusing on what you're trying to achieve in each separate standalone instance because mm -hmm. the, the pressure, it does grow. And whenever people talk about choking in sport, it's generally related to everything that's gone before mm. the moment of truth. And, and let me just say, I, I did choke in the test match at the Adelaide Oval against Brian Lara. It stands out. I'll, I'll you know, wake up in the middle of the night sometimes still thinking about it. But it's because of the fact that you're thinking about, you know, you're processing mm. all the time. And I'm thinking, well, I tried to do this. I executed it. And then he did this to it. So should I change it? So mm. do I need to do something different? And then you make a mistake. And then that's when you start changing things, that's when the mistakes happen. And that's when the choke happens. And it's all related to how you feel at the top of your mark. Is that the, is that the game in 2000 that you're talking about? I oh, mean, don't start throwing dates at me. I can't remember where I live. Yeah, the, the whitewash. The yeah, Look, Brian made a, a bunch, but I think um, Funky got a bunch of wickets. Yeah, he got uh, 10 Colin in that Miller match. got maybe 10 wickets or something. Yeah. yeah, but I can't remember much more about it. I just remember getting bashed everywhere by Brian. Mm. Yeah, going back to the, like, the contrast between when like that compound interest effect you're talking about yeah. where ball, compound after ball interest, if, you don't if, if you don't separate it into sort of discrete instances, it can really mm. play on you. The opposite feels like when a leg spinner's on a roll, when it's coming out of the fingers and the fizz and, you know, hear Warren talk about the fizz. You had one of those moments early in your career at the Sydney Cricket Ground when you take 12 wickets against England, seven for 50-odd in, in the second dig and watching that at the time as a kid, but watching it back recently, I mean, the drift, the turn, the everything, it, it, I mean, it felt like you could do no wrong in that match, but especially in that second innings. Incidentally, in Warren's comeback after his surgery, but put that to one side, your performance in that match was... Yeah, if you can elaborate on that, the idea that, yes, there is that risk factor, but also when it's going well, it can be a beautiful thing. Well, it's funny because, you know, as a bowler, you can exploit that feeling as well because every single batsman that was coming out to bat in that particular game you mentioned at the SCG, they weren't thinking about the next ball. Mm. They'd been watching the TV. They'd been seeing mm. what had happened to batsmen that they thought were probably better than them. And they had let everything that had occurred prior to that very moment influence the way they played. And look, I've got to be honest, as I said to you about the Brisbane game, I, I did feel as though that game, there was an inevitability about it. I, I, I thought, you know, I was going to do the business once I got on a roll. And, and this is one thing that I was always taught, you know, right from the very beginning is that once you've got a, an opposition team in the palm of your hand, you have to crush them. Mm -hmm. Like You have to take the opportunity because opportunities don't present themselves very often. And mm -hmm. that game at the SCG, we didn't have many runs on the board, but England were very, very nervous about playing spin bowling. And it was turning big. And it was a hard SCG pitch too. And they're the best ones because they bounce as well. I think mm. so still to this day, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest catch of all time by a wicketkeeper was Ian Healy. I think he might have caught 
Dean Headley or Warren Hague, I'm not sure which one it was, but he caught it. It would have hit Mark Taylor at first slip between the eyes and Ian Healy caught it. Mm. It, was, it was just a freak of a catch in the second innings. And England were watching that. Mm. And maybe you shouldn't watch the TV when you're next in to bat. I don't know. Yeah. But do you feel in that moment, like, do you feel the sensation of knowing that you're that much on top, like the right. opposite of that nervousness? No, no, really. I, like, as I said, there was a sense of inevitability for me. Yeah. I, like, I knew we were going to win that. Mm. I, I knew we were going to win in Brisbane, but the rain got in the way. I, we were on a relentless march to finish England in that game, despite having lost in Melbourne the, the test match before. It was, it was going to happen. And, you know, the other end, well, I Warney and McGrath, we, we had... Wait, you bowl up the other end of them. You're not going to worry about it. Hmm. I'm mindful that um, we've been talking for 35 minutes and we're still in 1998, 1999. The 99 tour of the Windies um, gets oh, talked yep. about a lot, not really because of you, but because the other bloke got oh. dropped. And, and I don't want to necessarily go into that uh, at the, hmm. necessarily, but more from your perspective, from your vantage point, I mean, you bowl so well at, Trinidad, if memory serves me correctly, but Lara is just absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And sort of the, the recollections of that tour from those that were there were that it was a fun tour, a lot of uh, nocturnal activities going on. People were enjoying themselves. Nowhere near as much as you, as you would think, to be honest. The, the Caribbean is a great place to tour as a spectator, not so much as a player because bars, no, because bars and restaurants don't really kick until 11 o'clock at night. So for us, after a test match, we had good time. But during the test matches, you'd go to a restaurant or go to a bar and you'd be the only person there. So it, oh, it, it, it genuinely, and, and look, I'm the first one to, you know, I'll tell you anything you, you want to hear, but the Caribbean is a hard place to tour. It's hot. It's dry. The pitches are, you know, Unforgiving, unforgiving. It's hard work, and we were getting bashed by Brian. And and one thing that I I think that Shane always forgets himself is that moments during his career that people talk about, which is unfair probably, are moments when he's either going into an injury or coming out of an injury, and in that case he'd just come out of pretty significant, you know, injury. You know, he played the test match before in, you know, against England at the SCG, but then we go to the Caribbean, which is hard work, and we're playing against Brian Lara, who, in my opinion, is the greatest player of spin bowling in the history of the game. Like, he's, he's you know, he can hit you anywhere he wants to hit you. But we had to pick four or five guys to get 20 wickets in a test. And that was what was you know, laid at the feet of, you know, Steve Waugh and his, his first full series as a captain. And I got six wickets in that test. So I would suggest that, you know, six out of 20, <laughs> as uh, Stephen like might have made the right decision. <laughs> well, well, and, and Warren himself said that in that exchange, he threw out three out, but in that exchange with Brendan Favola on, on whatever reality TV show it was, he kind of acknowledged that mm-hmm. by virtue of the fact that Australia won the test match, you took wickets for... You know, that, that ended up being yeah. a justified decision levelling the series. Yeah, it was 2-1 mm-hmm. going into it. You had to win. had to find a way to yeah. Um, yeah. to win that test match. But, I mean, it, it, but what it did sort of symbolise was 
that's the last time for a while where you two are given the chance to bowl together, which I thought was interesting. So, you know, you, you get, you're the incumbent at the end of that 99 series in the Windies ahead of Warren. Of course, there's the World Cup after that and Warren bowls as well as he does. But by the time you're back in, back to Australia for the following summer, that's where you start going through this period of your career where you're in for a test, you're out for a test, you play when Warney's not playing, but you don't play together except for a couple of test matches in 2005. Really, they make a decision that it's one or the other. Yeah, and I, and I look, I, I think um, if I have one regret about my career, it's that I didn't have the opportunity to play alongside him more often. I mean, we, we played this uh, rest of the world game, I think it was 2005-ish, and everybody rubbishes the game because... Australia destroyed the rest of the world. Well, I got nine wickets and Warney got eight. And we, Warney had just come off 40 wickets in, in the Ashes, the 05 Ashes, in a losing Ashes team. Mm. And 20 in the first innings, 20 in the second innings. He was bowling like a million bucks. I was on fire in that, that rest of the world game. You know why we won? Because we were better. We smoked mm. them. Like, we were all on top of our game. If Shane and I had played together more often, nobody's beating us. You, you pick the five bowlers or four bowlers that you believe can take 20 wickets. That's it, mm. full stop, end of story. Well, this might mess with Adam's chronology, but I have to do it given the, the link has come up. Mm. The 2005 Ashes, I watched in Kuala Lumpur and yep. I spent several weeks just yelling at the TV saying, why don't they pick Stuart McGill? When Glenn McGraw goes down with the injury, yep. all right, fair enough, they give Gillespie a shot, doesn't work yep. out. McGraw plays the third test, gets injured again. Yep. But when Sean Tate plays the fourth and fifth tests and yep. Ponting just doesn't bowl him, he's bowling three or four overs in an innings yep. and they're only picking him because you have to pick three seamers and a spinner, that's the way it's done. And they wouldn't look at it and say, England can't play leg spin. Shane Watt's taking 40 wickets in the so, series. Yep. Did you yeah. see it that way when you were sitting on the bench in that series? No, 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 it honestly killed me. So I'd played three years of county cricket at that stage for Notts, uh, for Nottinghamshire. Before the series, I went, okay, so I knew that Edgebaston turned square. I think Shane got 12 wickets there in the test match, as it turned out. That was the one where Glenn rolled his ankle. I wanted to play at Old Trafford, Edgebaston and the Oval. They were the three that I'd sort of put my, you know, hmm. I had my eyes on. When... Pidge rolled his ankle before day one at Edgebaston. I thought, that's it, I'm in, it's all good. And so before any test, I prepare to play. I, I don't muck around. I like, it, like, get ready to play. And if you don't get picked, then you can be, you know, grumpy and, you know, then that doesn't matter. But at least you're ready to play if called on. Didn't get picked. Wardy got 12 wickets. Didn't play at Old Trafford, draw... I remember warming up with the boys at Trent Bridge, which was the fourth test. And bearing in mind, that was my home ground. I'd played there for three years. A bowling to somebody and somebody from the crowd got stuck into me. And like, I'm not, you know, I'm not the most pleasant person on the planet at the best of times. But I remember turning to him and saying, listen, mate, I wouldn't talk too loud because I'm going to play next game. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna mess you, mess you up, and we're gonna take the ashes home. So shut the fuck up. Right? I was absolutely gobsmacked when I didn't. We we had to win that test mm. to take the ashes home. 
and I, I, still to this day, I, I don't know. I don't know what. I, I've got no idea what's going on there. And you know, look, I didn't get picked, but you know, I had a good time in London. <laughs> I'm glad we're on the same page. Yeah. It feels like a, like that's the most well known example of that and yeah i mean bewildering that you weren't given that opportunity over there but weren't taken to india in 2001 weren't taken to india in 2004 weren't taken to england in 2001 you mentioned you're playing a lot of county cricket by that stage of your career there, there are these instances where you're often the incumbent in the australian team but they make a call that they're only going to take one leg spinner on the tour full yeah. stop and i would have thought that you know, given that usually two spinners will play in India, for example, you would have been given an opportunity there at least once, but in 2001 or 2004. So I got seven wickets on day one of the fifth test against the West Indies. Don't know yeah. what year that was. It was that, it was that test match. It was the test match before India. So I get seven wickets. So they were none for 170 or something. Yeah. Then I get the first seven, including Lara, on day one. And at the end of that day... AB, who I've got to say is a good friend of mine, I love him. But AB sat next to me, he said to me, maybe not that day, but, you know, as the test was unfolding, he said to me, so how are you going to bowl in India? And he's on the selection panel. Like, I mm. just expected to go. Like, I, I, I don't know if I would have done any good in India. I, I don't know, man. I, I have no idea. <sighs> you know, I just don't know. But... I've never got the opportunity to bowl there. Um, but AB was saying to me, so how are you going to bowl in India? What are you going to do? And then I didn't get picked. And it was the next test match. So I was just, uh, so people talk about Dizzy making 200 and not getting picked for the next test. I got seven for in the first innings against the West <laughs> Indies and didn't get picked for the next test. So, you know, <laughs> swings and roundabouts, brothers. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the you're talking about not knowing how you would go in India, but you did have that that tour in Pakistan. You played in Bangladesh yep. later in your career as well. Did that give you okay? I know how, it how things might have been. Yeah. <laughs> like, look, you do bowl differently. There's no doubt about it. Modern theory is that you bowl quicker. I think you beat great batsmen through the air, not off the pitch. Right. So. I don't think you bowl quicker because if you bowl quicker, you're bowling flatter, you lose your shape. I think you bowl the speed that's appropriate for your body type and your your action and, you know. So Nathan Lyon's pace is probably five to seven kilometres an hour quicker than me. Mm -hmm. But both of us are right because you've got to bowl the pace that's appropriate. Mm. I don't know why they were saying that I, you know, and the, the, so they picked Cameron White in one of the one of the tours in India that I missed out on. They picked Cam instead of me, and the reason they did that is because they thought that you know faster would have been better. Well, just by the way, and I was going to say with all due respect to Cam, but with no respect to Cam, I can bowl fast leg spin better than he can. <laughs> Yeah, well, this was it, wasn't it? It was this idea that, yeah, and, and it meant that you, you go through this period of your career where 
you're a fixture at Sydney, sure. I mean, you, you played two test matches in two one, years. And then, one test a year for three or four years in a row. Yeah, that's right. You became that when they were, when, you know, that traditional sort of, oh, well, we're at the SCG, we'll play a second spinner. And you would yeah. always do well in it. And I find there's an interesting little digression here, which is that in that period where you were seldom getting a chance for Australia, mm. you get picked out of nowhere, really. I say nowhere. Statistically, you've built the case, but as far as never having played a one-day international before, yeah. you, you play one-day internationals in the summer of 99-2000 yep. and you do so well, 4 for 19 on taboo against Pakistan. There it is. <laughs> that, that's the, that's the one-day cap, is it? Call me while I'm talking to you guys. There you go. <laughs> that's my hat. <laughs> that's, that's the hat. Yeah. That's the hat. That's a memorage. Um, Very good. The only good part of that um, uniform that was the, the the year you're wearing the, the blue panels down the I side. Love the blue dreadful. panels. Controversial opinion, but you know the blue panels one of the best kits. But I think so. Adjudicate. Obviously, I looked very good in it. Yeah, yeah. You did. Well, you, you bowled you bowled well in it, and then you I mean, I just feel like to... this. You'd always have both arms up, show off the blue panels. You see. <laughs> Obviously, the fashion people had told me about it beforehand, mm. so I was I was I was not aware of the fact that the blue panels were a feature. Yeah. Just to quickly touch on that, though, I mean, I don't want to go too deeply into this. We've got a lot to cover, but um, you took more wickets for New South Wales in white ball cricket than anyone by the time of your retirement, and played a few one days, cleaned up. Never seen again. I mean, what's the story there? No one really talks about that. So that does give me the shits, I've got to be honest, because it wasn't just for New South Wales. My domestic one-day record in Australia is still to this day right up there. John Buchanan decided that run rate won limited overs cricket games. He's wrong. He's still wrong. If you look at T20 games and ODIs to this day, Spin bowlers clean up. If you take wickets, all you need is 10. <laughs> you take 10 wickets at five and over, you win in the game, man. Like, it, it's not it's not even close. And that's all. I, I think I went for five and a quarter and over. And I got two and a half, three wickets every game I played for New South Wales. We won. I think we won five domestic one-day championships while I was playing for New South Wales. <sighs> you know, it did bum me, but look... Doesn't matter. Other people got a game that wouldn't have, so that's cool for them. I did like playing one day cricket though. One day cricket is so much easier than test cricket. Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> you've got this cut the kind of limited confines of what you've got to do, right? It's not it's not a broad canvas. It's you know what the job is. For a spin bowler, yeah. the hardest thing to do is to get the batsman to play a shot. Right. Twenty twenty. Hello, Stewie. There it is. Yeah. We're talking a lot here about where you've been overlooked for teams and not played, but uh, I wanted to emphasise that you end up going to become the quickest bowler uh, to 150 test wickets. You gallop there in 8,312 deliveries, which is faster than anyone. Even Yassir Shah, who makes it to 200 before anybody, didn't make it to 150 before you. So there's a lot of test cricket in there as well in different clumps. So, for example, uh, in that summer of 2000, 2001 that we mentioned before against the West Indies where you take a stack of wickets and then the next major clump of test cricket you play is when Warm injures his shoulder initially uh, in the 2002-03 Ashes series and then the, the 12 months after that when he's banned from the side where you pick up 53 test wickets and get that sort of sustained run in different parts of the world, in the West Indies, against Bangladesh, Zimbabwe, then then India. I mean, that must have felt good as far as I know the circumstances weren't ideal with Warren, but the fact that you were at the peak of your powers getting a chance week in, week out. I'll tell you a funny story about, so 
when I went to 100, I think I got to 100 test wickets in maybe 20, I don't know, 21 games, let's say, something like that. And as I mentioned to you earlier, Dennis uh, Lilly is, you know, one of my dad's best mates. So got to 121. I think Dennis got there in 23. So my dad called me from, from Perth. We were in Trinidad or something like that. And um, I said to dad, uh, you know, ask Dennis how many games it took him to get to 100 wickets. And Dennis sent a message back. I got a message in the hotel. <laughs> how many games did it take you to get to 350, champ? <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty cool. So, yeah. Look, man, I, I, the, the reason that uh, I'm pumped about the stats that you're giving me with the, the speed at which I, I was taking the is because that was the only thing that I cared about. As far as I was concerned, your job as a bowler is to take wickets as quick as you can. Mm-hmm. And the quicker you can take the wickets, the more opportunities you provide to the batsman to win the game. But bowlers with great strike rates win test matches. A question in here which I can't answer from the get-go from Ilya Andrews, was Stuart McGill quicker to 150 wickets than Clary Grimmett? We talk about Probably not. Clary Grimmett a lot on this show because he was a leg spinner who took massive bags as well. But you two are pretty close together in terms no, of, you know, actually, actually that's, per test. That's very polite of you, Jeff. That's very polite of you. But to be brutally honest, I think, and I mentioned the to 100 wickets, mm-hmm. I think I got there in, 90, uh, in 21. I think Clary got there in 19 or 18 or maybe even <laughs> 17 and he got that guy was a freak bearing in mind he played for australia for the first time when he was 38 hmm. so like he's a super freak they changed the laws of the game to suit clary grimmett is the bomb man thank you I'm, we agree on all of the key issues Stuart. this is why there we go <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've got a message here for Ilya andrews to clarify about that but by deliveries you beat him there so oh, that's something to do with how many you Clary did, who? you, you beat, yeah, yeah. beat all comers to 150. Clary who, there we go. There Worth noting for the record. 2004, I mentioned before, was the year you were playing, sorry, 2003, you were playing Test Cricket consistently, then not so much in 2004 apart from the start of the year in Sri Lanka. A couple of things from that year that, that stand out to me. One is at the SCG when things aren't going so well against India, end of a long summer, and not just you, but the Australian bowling group are kind of copying it from the Sydney crowd. I remember sort of Steve Waugh in his final test match almost t- kind of telling the crowd to give it a spell. What was your interpretation of that at the time? And were expectations so high in Australian cricket that the one time that at home we didn't clean up India, it was cause for such consternation? I mean, that must have been quite frustrating given it was coming off the back of such a sustained period of success. Look, see, you know, I, I, um, I think the big thing about sport is there's no point, don't get me wrong, I love crunching every single team I play against, <laughs> but you only know if you're any good when you play against teams that are properly good. Mm. I count myself as being incredibly fortunate to have played against, in that team, Ganguly, Sawag, Dravid, Lakshman, like, that's a proper – and Tendulkar, you know, just on the side. But that, that, that's Larry a, who? Yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah, that's a proper team. And yeah. I don't think there's any shame in finding it difficult 
to knock them over. I was actually very proud of myself in that series because I think I got Lakshman out maybe five. Uh, I didn't get many wickets. I may have only got 12 in the, the, the three of uh, I can't four tests, maybe 12 wickets, let's say. But I think I got Lakshman out four or five times. Like I got him out in both innings in Melbourne. That's the proudest mm. I've ever been because he's not only is he a superstar, but he's a lovely bloke. Mm. So when you get him out, it's kind of like you can't even be angry at him. It's like, oh, God. I remember throwing the ball back at him. Oh, we're in Adelaide. And he hit the ball back at me and I picked it up and I threw it back at him trying to be, you know, all <laughs> aggro and like Norman, you know, yeah. Norman Bates sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, he ducked it and he said, come on, Stewie, I know you're a nice man. Come on! You can't say that. It's not fair. But they're great batsmen. They're great people. I always got on very well with Saurav as well. Savar, great guy. Like, Satch has been into the restaurant. Like, we, we, we all get on pretty well. And I respect them. I respect them enormously. And I thought that it was, I think it was just getting close to the time when Stephen knew that he was going to, because if you remember, he'd announced his retirement at the beginning of the series, Mm. which is unusual, Mm. but it was just getting close and people then, he kind of exposed himself because then for the first time in history, people sensed that there was a, a, you know, a flaw in Steve War, which mm. there wasn't, by the way. You know, I remember him bashing living daylights out of it in Sydney. But, but I, I, I just, um, I thought it was a little bit unfair the way that everything unfolded because we actually did play very, very well in that series. First test we would have won, it got rained out again in Brisbane. Melbourne we played sensationally in Adelaide they played sensationally which is also really cool I love that sort of stuff you know it's when you know you're alive that's proper competition something I always wondered about watching you play test cricket you were never a big celebrator when you took a wicket in test you always seemed really serious and quiet you know and then you see some clips from you in the first season of the big bash when you get a wicket and you're absolutely going off your head so <laughs> what what was your what was going through your mind when you you took a wicket in test i'll tell you what the difference was in a test match in a test match you got to bowl another ball mm. you got to go again you got to go again you got to go again in a big bash particularly in so I only played one year at the Big Bass, BBL1. Everybody thought that the Sixers were going to come last. We didn't. Mm-hmm. Everybody thought I was old and fat and finished. They were right, but I wasn't. <laughs> and you celebrate the moment a lot easier when you know that the end is closer. Celebrating the battle, not the war. I remember seeing Alex Tudor, who's a great bloke and, you know, mate of mine, he got five wickets in the first. It was one of his first test matches. He got five wickets in the first innings of a t- test match in, in an Ashes. He was on his back in the middle of the pitch, pumping the air, having got five wickets in the first innings of the test match, mm. and England got smoked. So, you know, I bet he regrets that to this day. 
in a test match when you take a wicket, the reason I was trying to like keep it because I'm very emotional and I get very angry mm. and I get very, I get really into it. I just got to try and keep it down, keep it down, keep it down, keep it down. I would explode for a second mm. and then try and bring it back in straight away. Yeah. Like it's almost like, you know, explosion in a vacuum. Mm. <laughs> but in 2020, doesn't matter, man. Every wicket you get, you're well, 2020, it's 20 overs. Mm. You get three wickets in a 2020 game, man, you might as well just sort of sit in the lounge chair in the outfield. That's, you know, which is what I did, you know. Job done. Yeah. <laughs> With respect to that emotional side of, of you, and it's another part of the, you know, the Stuart McGill story that I think at the time wasn't thoroughly understood. It's that you had a broader sense of the world around you and, and there was a couple of notable examples, but one is the Zimbabwe 2004 decision that you made. So to recap and keen for you to elaborate on this, but you elected not to tour Zimbabwe with Australia in 2004 and were the only Australian to put their hand up and say no. There was some talk ahead of that tour that it ended up becoming a one-day tour, so it didn't end up causing any of the test players to make a big decision. But had it been a test series, you wouldn't have gone. And that's something that, yeah, sure, there was some discussion around it in the World Cup in 2003 when England refused to visit. But it was a big call given that was a period of time where you were in the test side that you were willing to sit out if required because you couldn't countenance going to Zimbabwe due to the atrocities being committed by the Mugabe regime at the time. Okay, so first thing that I've got to say, so I went to Zimbabwe with the team after a Sri Lankan tour. 99. 99. And because I'm a sportsman. The only time I become aware of anything is when I'm exposed to it. So I went to Zimbabwe. I met some people that I liked. We got on really well. We had an amazing tour. We went from Bulawayo to Vic Falls, you know, on the train overnight, you know, the whole team. It was a fantastic tour. But as a consequence of meeting all these people and immersing yourself in the the cricketing culture, because it's not the overall culture or overall society, in the cricketing culture, you become aware of what's going on around the place. Mm. So then I came home and you start, so, you know, nowadays what you do is I just flag Zimbabwe. So as I'm getting my news feeds, Zimbabwe would be one of them. So I read everything about Zimbabwe after that. And then I'm sort of realising, you know what, so Robert Mugabe is building a house that's worth, you know, 1.8 million US, but his official wage per year is $120,000. How is that happening? What, what's going on there? And then I looked at the ZCU, Zimbabwe Cricket Union, and the official patron, Robert Mugabe, and I knew having met all the guys that some of the guys were living under the grandstand. Like, if they didn't play and complained, they would be kicked out. It was, mm. it was very bad. It was a very, very bad time. I'm, I am just a sportsman. So I, what I did was I asked when I remember being, we were all in Sri Lanka and the proposed tour of Zimbabwe came up in a team meeting with CA officials, and I said, how much money is generated 
by a tour of Zimbabwe by an Australian cricket team. And it was 90 million US was the number. I'm old and my memory might not be right. Let's just throw out $90 million. My point is that of that $90 million, how much is actually getting given to the players? How much is going into grassroots cricket? How much is, and how much is going into the Mugabe regime? So as soon as I heard 90 million bucks, I just went, well, that's it, I'm, I'm done. The next thing I did, I spoke to a very good friend of mine and a good person, Andy Flower, and he said to me, he said, Stuart, if you think you're going to change the world or if you think your opinion matters, you're kidding yourself. He said, no matter what you do, tomorrow it's still happening. Mm. He said, but if you want to do something because you believe in it, then I would embrace you. And that's why I love him, you know, and I, that, because it's very good advice. Don't think you're going to change the world if you're not prepared to, if you're not actually in it. I can't change anything over there. I just did what I thought was right. Mm. And that's, that's the reason I did it. I just, I didn't think it was right for me to go. So I didn't, I didn't try to affect anybody else in the team. Didn't talk to anybody else in the team about it. It was just, that was my decision. I didn't go. That was it. End of. Yeah, right. So if we jump back to the later end of your career, you talked about, so you missed that 05 Ashes, you talked about cleaning up in the, the World yep. Series and then you're playing that summer as well alongside Warren, the sort of windy South Africa and whatnot, not playing the next year, the 067 Ashes. But then he's gone and the floor is yours, except Australia basically don't play any test matches for the next kind of year and a half they played. Yeah. Yeah, that was yeah, that was a couple of tests in that time. Yeah, yeah. How does that period of time look for you when when you're Stuart McGill at, at that point? Listen, uh, I was as stunned as anybody when Shane said he wasn't going to play anymore. I didn't know, but I'm going to fast forward again. So in '08, when I pulled the pin, because I thought that I was letting my team down because physically I was not up to it. Like you know, uh, still. I can't feel the ends of my fingers, like, you know, you know but, but for whatever reason, I never played in South Africa. I never played against New Zealand. I never played in England. I never played in India. Twelve months after I stopped playing for Australia, 2008, I would have played against all of those teams right. and I would have ticked all of those boxes. Yeah. So... Anybody who suggests for one second that I didn't want to play cricket anymore is a moron. Dead set moron. Yeah, it's a really interesting party. So I mean, Man, the at first it, test it, of the Ashes series the next year was in Cardiff. Mm. Uh, where, you're, where you're from, where your family are from, of course. Uh, there we go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, like, I mean, I could have had my family there. I'd never played against New Zealand. I'd never played in South Africa. I'd never played in England. And I'd never played in India. And I'd have done it all. Mm. Let's explore that a bit, though, because you do pull the pin. Like, you play four test matches after Warren retires and when you retire, which it looks incongruous because there's such a long period of time that elapses. It's about 18 months or so in that window. Of course, you pick up an injury, you know, 708 at home and, and Brad Hogg plays. But generally speaking, you're considered to be, again, the, the number one Australian spinner. And CA wanted you to be the number one spinner for the 2000. Yeah, they were very, very, they were very, very supportive. 
Andrew Hilditch was the chairman of selectors and I liked him. I get along with him great. So, Right. So so they want you to play through and, you know, essentially do what Warren did in 05 and be there in 09. But yeah. you make that decision in the West Indies that your body can't do it anymore. With the benefit of hindsight 12 years away from it all, would have your decision now been more along the lines of, let's go away for six months and get my body right? Or could you just not, was it, was it to the stage where and uh, no matter how much rehabilitation you may have done, the playing test cricket would have been beyond you. No, no. So, so, for, uh, so uh, there are actually limitations to what I can say uh, in this regard. Yeah. But let me just say this. The situation that I found myself in, in the Caribbean, was almost identical to the situation I found myself in pre-surgery four months earlier. And to this day... There was an inevitability about it, and I don't really care if people agree or not because they're not, they're not living it. And it was the inevitability of it that led me to the position that I find myself in. Man, I would still like to be playing test cricket today <laughs> because there's nothing better than staring down the wicket and looking at the confused face on a batsman when you've messed him <laughs> up. You mentioned that when you came back to play in the Big Bash, you know, in 2012, was it that first Big Bash season, that that was a bit of cleansing, a bit of closure for you because you got yeah. to come back and do it again. You got to yeah. confound a few batsmen again. You got to yeah. shred the ball. And I was like watching back those clips today and it's as good as you've ever bowled, it looks like. It was just outstanding in terms of the revs on the ball and the amount that it's spinning off the pitch. Tell us about that. So there are a couple of things there. I've been coaching a bit, wearing RM Williams and a pair of skinny jeans. They weren't that skinny because, you know, <laughs> and looking at some of the young spin bowlers that I was coaching. And I'm not going to hide at all in this respect. There was an ego component. Mm. I was looking at them going, you don't even know who I am. You don't know what I've done. And neither should they, for God's sake, you know. The second you're done, you're done. It's, it's, you know, but, 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 but I was, it was still a little bit raw for me because I didn't want to finish. Right. So I think that was the thing because I hadn't wanted to finish. I was a bit pressured. Oh, not pressured. I was just a bit still attached to it. Yeah. And, and like all I wanted was just some sort of acknowledge, like I just wanted somebody to go, you know, good boy, yeah. Stuart, you know. Yeah. And I'm watching him bowl and then i am got the RMs on and I'm bowling the ball. Uh, this is what I mean. And I'm going, that's, oh, my God, don't stop it. Don't bowl against Stuart. Don't, don't bowl. Don't bowl. Because I get excited and then I mm. forget why I can't. Because I, I can bowl one ball. Yeah. I just can't bowl two days in a row. And then for me, it's all about test cricket. And if you can't bowl two days in a row, you're useless. Like, you, you, there's no point. There's no point being able to bowl 20 overs today and then being in a wheelchair tomorrow. You, you're not contributing to the team. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a waste of time. But I'm watching him and I'm just going, Ugh. and Big Bash popped up and I just thought, you know what? Oh, and the other thing is, so my son, Alex, who's now, like, this is how old I, like, he's just finished his HSC, but he used to come on tour with me and he used to, yeah, it was kind of cool. When he was just a really, really little boy, like three, four, five years old, he used to come on tour with me and he didn't really remember 
too much. He remembered being on tour, but he didn't really remember me bowling. Mm. My daughter, Penny, had never really seen me bowling. And I just thought, you know what? I play this big bash. If I do okay, then at least the kids get to see me playing proper cricket again. And that make me feel, that'll make me feel proud. And I did feel proud. Like the SCG Trust gave me a box for the first game and Alex and Penny were in the box and they bought some of their friends and, you know, I, you know, I got a couple of wickets and it was the best, the best I've felt for a long time. And I got to play with a couple of really good mates too. So like Patrick Farhart was the physio and, you know, Moses Enriquez was playing. I had Pete Neville, one of the best keepers I've ever bowled to in there. Stewie Clark was the CEO. It was, it was just Brett Binger was playing. It, it was, it was just great. You know, I, I, it was a very, very, very good experience for me. And, um, it may not have put everything to bed for me, mm. but my daughter remembers me playing now. <laughs> so that's cool. Yeah, it's pretty special. Yeah, yeah it is good. Ah, it's good, man. It's, it's great. I, I, I see that you've got a there's a highlights reel of you bowling uh, in that 11-12 Big Bash, which you I posted. Yeah. Well, you, you posted yourself and put it to some you know temper trap and temper really, trap, uh, man. Uh, you know and, what? I reckon that temper trap track. So it's sweet disposition. Sweet disposition. Yeah, it's yeah. one of the most appropriate sporting reel. Mm-hmm tracks and they let me use it which was really cool oh. because you know what happens on youtube you you, yeah. you get the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the things ripped down the temperature guys they let me use it and kept that's why it's still up there yeah, which right. made it it made it you know because i i wanted to, the reason i put that highlight reel up there is because it really was a cathartic experience for me mm. and it was a special season and we won and you know we won. You know we we won the we won the big bash when everybody said we were going to come last. And yeah, so sweet disposition. That's me. And it's something we've come across on the show a lot with a lot of players we've talked to. That ending is the hardest part. You know, letting go of something that you've worked at so hard for so long, and then having that feeling of you know what what happens next. Um, that that sense Nothing. of loss. It's a, it's a, a kind of grief. You know. Yeah, it's a debacle, yeah. yeah, especially with cricket because you spend so much time, spend so much time. Would it be fair to say you've reconciled that in recent times? I mean, from the outside looking in, you know, the fact that you were doing some bowling coaching in Bangladesh a couple of years ago, yeah. we were talking to you before we came on air about the work you're doing, you know, a bit of part-time stuff just with your son there at North Sydney. Like, have you have you sort of felt as though in the in the last five or six years that, where it might have ebbed and flowed, but now you've, you've like cricket's in a good place for you and you're in a good place with cricket? No, I'm still not there. Uh, like, I still would like to play. I, I'd like to play first grade tomorrow. Mm. And one of the main reasons I would never do that, well, there's a couple of main reasons. <laughs> first of all, I'm 50. And as I said, probably couldn't bowl two days in a row. But secondly, if I did well, let's say I played first grade. And, 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 and by the way, I'm not suggesting for one minute that I would bowl well mm-hmm. because I am old and things don't move in the way that they should be moving. But if I did well, then I'd want to play for New South Wales. Yeah. And I'm 50 years old. Just, it's not going to happen. It can't happen. It right. shouldn't happen. 
I would be hurting myself, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that. And and so that's why even playing charity games or testimonial matches, I, I, I still, I'm, man, I, I don't think I'm not sure if I'll ever get there. I don't think I'll ever get. Yeah. I don't think I'll ever get to the point where I can cope with it. I, I don't. I didn't want to stop me. So, you know. It's, so it's something you can't disconnect from. You just I, don't think it can ever, I don't think it'll ever happen. Yeah. yeah. Which, which I might sound like I'm a, I'm a loser, but, but um, that's just the I, I just don't think I can ever. Yeah. Look, if I had wanted to retire, then maybe I'd feel totally different. But I, I didn't and I don't. And if I play, I'm going to want to mess people up. And it's just a shame. So, you know, anyway. Yeah. But, I mean, that's, that's the reality. That's the truth of it. We're always looking for happy endings in these sort of situations that, that everybody's supposed to mind, find peace, but not everyone does. Jeff, trust me, it messes my whole life up <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because everything I do. So the thing with cricket is, as a bowler, you stand 20 metres away from someone. It's like showdown at the OK Corral, mm. like, you know, walk 10 paces, turn around and bang. Mm. Cricket, you get to humiliate people. It's not a very nice sport. <laughs> this is something that affects my entire life. And look, I don't know. I mean, I think it's something for sports men and women who are finishing up. It's, it's, yeah. it's hard work. Yeah, but maybe cricket is a little bit more difficult because of the time spent in competition and preparation. Yeah, you know, Stuart, you've been so much fun to talk to over the last couple of weeks in preparing for this show, and for being so generous with your time and with your insight and with your honesty as well about your career. It's just brilliant stuff. And thanks for coming out and making the time. It, it means an awful lot to us. Pleasure. So uh, just remember, when you're in Sydney. Aristotle's Neutral Bay. And if you're going to follow uh, a football team, we need a little piece of Liverpool Football Club. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. And thank you once again to Stuart McGill. That's, That's a few of the most moving minutes, I think, that I've spent listening to a cricket or, or in conversation over the few years we've been doing this that extraordinarily honest end to that interview and and how willing Stuart was to show us inside his life. Yeah, I think a, a lot of former players can be quite can be quite sort of bullish and alpha about that and you know uh, almost too cool to talk about how much it must affect them when they have that taken away and in his case uh, I think he would probably share the view. He, he articulated it in our interview that he's never really let it go. He's never been able to let it go because that's all he ever wanted and that has meant that the dismount was tough and the fact that he was willing to, to share that with us in such an earnest fashion meant a lot and he, yeah, is one of the good guys and you can tell that from his social media feed as well. Like He isn't one of these sort of former players who you, you do see from time to time who is just doesn't want to 
engage. Like, McGill is out there, sure, but he's out there wanting to talk about his love of the game with anyone who want to talk about it with him, and I reckon that's really cool for someone who was so successful and so talented to be giving back in that fashion. So we hope you enjoyed it as well. Let us know what you thought. Any and all feedback, welcome. And on we go with the final word. The India Daily will be coming to you each day of the Test Match Story Time, the historical wonder will be on the weekend and uh, on we'll go into 2021 after that. Uh, the, the last 12 months have been pretty remarkable for the show, so we're looking forward to seeing where it goes next. The final word is on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. It's edited by David Collins and it is listened to by you. Thanks for that. No point doing it if you weren't listening. Um, thanks to everyone on the Patreon page who keeps it going. If you want to become one of them and play Nerd Pledge and send us a number, it's patreon.com slash the final word. So you know what I meant. I had to go about it, write it out.